We have almost forgotten that we are in a great mortal combat. The battle of the forces of good and the forces of evil. Today we are beginning either to domesticate the devil or else to deny him. God's definition of himself is I am who I am. The devil's definition of himself is I am who am not. He is most powerful when he is denied. Welcome to Wednesday's War College. My name is Jesse Romero. I'm here in an undisclosed bunker here in the state of Illinois uh, doing a parish uh, evangelization conference all week uh, during during the Lenten season. And I'm here with my partner, Dan Schneider, from another undisclosed bunker in the state of New Mexico. Dan, welcome. Welcome back, brother. We haven't seen each other in a few weeks. Yeah, yeah. It's good to be back. It's good to be back and live. Hey, tell me about a, a, a young listener yeah, we, I get emails and, 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 and messages from, you know, from parish priests, uh, people all over, all over the place, you know, um, enjoying the show, needing just how to tweak, you know, move the right thumb, three quarter inch type questions, you know. This one's from a fifth grader in, uh, uh, in Virginia, Stafford, Virginia. And uh, he, he asked me to proofread uh, an essay that he wrote on the Holy Spirit for his Catholic school. And the, essay, the, the question is, Jesus called the Holy spirit the spirit of truth because it gives us the knowledge of truth the comforter because he strengthens our faith etc the counselor because he gives us wisdom and the sanctifier because he makes us holy write a paragraph on how the holy spirit is at work in the church today and here's what he says when we go to the when we go to the go to holy mass and receive the holy eucharist we receive god through the holy spirit the only thing god wants for us is to be with him in heaven the pope teaches us this much wow. the bishops the bishops teach us this much but we often only we only see them and we see them and we should we should be amazed at how much we can learn just by simply going to mass and seeing our priest and listening to our priest. That's the true way the Holy Spirit speaks to us. A verse in the Bible says, uh, surround yourself with good words, people and actions, and you'll love the outcome. That's the basis of what the real Bible verse says about the Annunciation of Mary. What would happen? Um, um, she said, what happened? Would we be here? if She would have said no. Sharp kid. No, everything happens for a reason. So go to Mass. Let God take you along the path. Once again, that's the real meaning of the Holy Spirit, being guided by God. If you know something wrong and you do it, stop this. Because everything we do must, everything we do that is sinful must, must be stopped and surround yourself with good people and, and stay on God's path. And the outcome will be good for you. So go to Mass. Listen to your priest. Right. Uh, 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 follow, follow your good, faithful priest. Listen to your parents. Uh, I, I think it was a great letter on the Holy Spirit. Very simple, very practical. But this is a fifth grader. I got to commend this is unbelievable. This, this boy goes to William of York Catholic School in Stafford, Virginia. Kudos to them. He also says he thinks he probably wants to be a deacon someday. And uh, he must have a good deacon at that parish and uh, must have good priests at that parish, too. I would say don't just look at the diaconate. Go go turn the turn third base and go for home and go for the full priesthood if you can. Um, but we can see vocations and you can see brilliant minds. Now, this was supposed to be three sentences and he wrote three pages. So I think he might be a better theologian uh, like me that, rather than a priest, because we, we're good at taking something and expanding it into three pages when you only need to do it in three. But uh, but no, but but it's great to hear young listeners uh, listening in and, and getting this stuff. And it's great to see good formation, you know, 
Uh, yeah, I, that, I, that's a breath of fresh air. That letter is a breath of fresh air. A young listener who's so well-formed that listens to the show. And Dan, you've often talked about in the past that one of the things that in, in the world of demons, they, they see a young person who has the vocation and they generally try to go after that young person. Can you talk a little bit about that psychology? Yeah, yeah. yeah. there's a tradition you may have heard in Mexico, and it's a, it's more of a legend, you know, maybe a wives' tale, so to speak. Um, that that, um, but, but I think there's some there is some some truth behind it that uh, that everybody gets a guardian angel, but a priest a priest either gets an archangel or a second guardian angel when he has a vocation. You hear some of this in the lore, but I was thinking the other day about this about vocation. Um, we were in South Carolina not long ago, and I made the comment, and I got some hisses. I said, I'm not sure that if they play football south of the, the Mississippi River uh, and the Mason-Dixie line, I'm not sure if they play football down there because in the Big Ten, we play smash-mouth football, and I got hissed, you know. But uh, I, I was thinking <laughs> of the example. Trevor Lawrence, the great, great quarterback, took it, Clemson to the national championship a couple of times, tremendous quarterback, and now playing in the NFL. He's a hero in the state of South Carolina. He was recruited when he was in the ninth grade, of what I read. He was offered a scholarship to play for Clemson in the ninth grade. Now, wow. Dabo Sweeney, he's, a, he's, he's not a genius, but he's a smart guy. And these coaches can figure out talent when they see it at that age. These guys are men among boys. Uh, but they're, they're already at the ninth grade level, already ready to play D3 college. That's the way it works in athletics. I think there's there's some parallel, um, you know, uh, mutatis mutandis uh, analogies we can draw from that in the spiritual life. You see young men like who wrote this, this letter to me today. You see young men that and young women that have purity and they're already thinking about uh, um, the priesthood or thinking about deeper things at an early age. Um, we see we see men and women among among children intellectually and, and, and spiritually. And let's think about it. Therese got her vocation at, when she received her first communion, when she received her vocation. This is that tender age where, the, where they're most open to the spiritual to the spiritual life. And, and really, you see this that man is created for God in, in philosophy. You remember, we studied uh, the philosophy of the human person and that man is homo religiosus, that he is, yes. man is a religious person by nature, and he craves the other and the divine, and we see it so beautiful when it's done in, 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 the, in the purity of a child. Dan, I, re I read a story that St. Therese, when she was still at home before entering the convent, I think at the age of 14, this is how holy she was and how pure she was, that there was a murder that was supposed to be uh, executed with the guillotine over in France, and somebody, she found out about it, that this guy was slated for execution. And he had a hard heart. He was, uh, he had a heart of Pharaoh, uh, didn't want to repent, kind of laughed at the fact that he had killed two women and a child. And uh, she says, I'm going to start doing prayer and penance for him. And so she did. I mean, what we're, what we're all called to do with the, from the Fatima apparition, prayer and penance for people. So she did, a 14-year-old, Therese, prior to entering the convent, and again, this guy, they take him out of his jail cell. They're going to take him over to the guillotine to cut his head off for the three murders that he's committed. And that basically he was unrepentant and he basically laughed at the victims up until the, the day he was executed. So they take him out of the cell. A priest is there. He's walking to the guillotine. A priest holds out a crucifix uh, to this convicted murderer. He stops and he has a St. Dismas moment. Therese who's not a nun, is praying for him in her house, specifically, intentionally, by name, knows who he is. He stops, 
grabs the crucifix from the priest, kisses it slowly three times, a tear rolls down his eyeball, then he walks over to the guillotine and they cut his head off. To me, again, it just it just it just shows the power of prayer and penance and the way it can be those graces are distributed from from that a holy person to the person they're intending to pray for and uh that goes that shows again again the innocence of saint therese how powerful her prayers were at a young age even before she entered the convent yeah yeah that's that's the the power uh of intercessory not just intercessory prayer but the power of the mystical body when, when uh, I think it was Pius Twelfth wrote an encyclical called uh, Mystici Corporis. And in it, he says that God, in, in a great mystery, not because he needs us, but he desires our participation, he acquires objectively the graces of salvation on Calvary. Christ objectively secured the graces of salvation, but he leaves the site open, so to speak, for the subjective participation of his body. You know, what St. Augustine calls the totus Christus, the complete Christ, head and body are members. That we are, we form one entity, one corpus, the body of Christ. And so we suffer with Christ and our suffering when united with Christ brings grace into the world. This is an absolutely critical understanding. Um, I was reading another encyclical, it was Pius X, wrote a 50, 50 year um anniversary to the to the lord's uh apparitions and so and what he and at the end he condemns and calls the blessed mother the exterminatrix or conqueress of all heresy and he says the greatest the greatest heresy is modernism which we're still living and fighting against in now in spades and one of the marks of modernism is the rejection of the value of the objective value of suffering interesting we think of modernism as other things but it's 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 the rejection of the theology of suffering and why that's so important. Well, that makes sense. Uh, that that's exactly what the devil wants uh, us to get away from is, is suffering. That's why we have this whole marijuana industry, CBD industry. You know, go to a psychic, go to these people that have healing hands. No, don't suffer. And yet, Christ calls us to a life of redemptive suffering, uh, so that we can make atonement for our sins and for those of the whole world. Then I want to switch gears a little bit here, and I will probably get to it in the next segment. But there's a Michigan mom who unfortunately was a drug addict, and she killed her three-year-old daughter. In uh, this, uh, the story came out on Fox News on yeah. the Nancy Grace show. <clears throat> her daughter was three years old that she killed, and she's as this as this mom was under the influence. I mean, you know, of, of narcotics. Mm-hmm. She says that as she's watching TV, SpongeBob made me do it. And then she went out, uh, went on to commit a violent crime on, on, on her child. Uh, yeah. The, the fact is, again, she, she was withdrawing from heroin. And so that's, uh, I mean, I've known a lot of heroin addicts in my life. I've dealt with them. Heroin and meth are the two drugs were that, of people that I've arrested. They, they've told me, they go, officer, when you're on this drug, you actually see evil spirits you actually see them they talk to you those are the two drugs that completely in my uh, uh, life as a police officer every drug addict that i've talked to which has been hundreds and hundreds has told me the same thing these open the door to demons in your life so i want to talk about that with you on the next segment and just get your little get a little feedback on uh on this yeah, yeah, okay
And I wake up. College. And wake up. Get up, pray the Angelus. Get out of bed. <laughs> uh, Jess Romero and drill instructor Dan Schneider here on War College. Hey, if you want to be a spiritual soldier, you got to get out of bed early. You know what I mean? You, you, you can't lay in bed. I know you're a night person and you work night shifts your whole life. You got to get up and at it. You want to be a soldier for Christ, man. You got to get regimented. You got to get it on schedule. Amen. You got to be disciplined. 6 a.m. Angelus. Got it. Got a drill instructor. Fair hey, enough. Then uh, this uh, this lady from hey, Michigan. And yesterday was your last yeah. easy day, by the way. You got to remember that. <laughs> got it. 10-4. 10-4 DI Dan. All right. Hey, so uh, Dan, this lady says that SpongeBob was speaking to her through the television. I'm not going to laugh at this because, again, she's under the influence of heroin. She's yeah. living in mortal sin. So without a doubt, as St. John Vianney says, he says we should guard our five senses because demons enter through them. One of the five senses would be the eyes, the sight. So I'm not going to laugh at this article. I'm going to say, yeah, this is a very real possibility uh, that the demon could have caused SpongeBob with her being under the influence of heroin and having just, uh, again, living a life of mortal sin. Uh, the demon could have uh, manipulated SpongeBob or at least made her think that SpongeBob was talking to her. We also know that St. Elizabeth Ann Seton has made uh, over 100 years ago, back in the 19th century, mid-19th century, she said that uh, there would be a point in time in history, she said this like 70 years before the television was invented, that demons would enter into, into houses through boxes in the living rooms. Obviously, this is a reference probably to televisions because she said this before the invention of the television. And there's also a story, a very well-known story of St. Padre Pio who never went to, to watch a movie in a theater. His parishioners one day had him halfway convinced to go watch a movie, and he, he, he conceded uh, reluctantly, so they're driving him to the movie, and when they get there, Father Pio had a conniption. He basically says, take me back, take me back to the parish. What's the matter? We're here. We're here. You promised you'd come with us. Take me back, take me back. Why, why? And he just said quite simply, quite succinctly, he says, there's demons inside that theater. Take me back. And so the story goes that Father Pio never walked into a movie theater. That's the last thing he told his parishioners. Take me back. There are demons inside that theater. So I'm not going to laugh at this lady at this article. You know, SpongeBob talked to me and told me to kill my 13, my, my three-year-old daughter. But Dan, what would you say in a spiritual warfare from a spiritual warfare? I mean, this, this week we would call this uh, demonic obsession, mental attacks from a demon, even using the images of a television, correct? Yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean... <clears throat> Um, what was the primary vector? Some people are just um, nuts. Nuts. They're insane and evil. <laughs> um, and, and other, but anytime there's something this grave, you know, there'll be diabolic accompaniment. It goes back to, to you know, your book um, on the devil in the city of angels and how, you know, some, some of the murderers could say Jesus is Lord and some of them couldn't even get the words out. So, uh, so that, that's Correct. kind of a, the, the response to the sake would give you kind of a smoke out. But, you know, the description of the flat affect, the description of um, DID, uh, the dissociative identity disorder, um, 4 a.m., which probably means it happened somewhere around a 3 a.m. hour. Um, you know, th there's some indications that, yeah, there, there's this, 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 this probably very well could be diabolic. We've had cases where we, one lady called, the called a diocese and said, uh, you know, so I do the intake, what's going on? Well, I, you know, everything was fine. And then I started, then I did a, a crystal meth. And then I, and after I, I started seeing demons immediately. 
and I couldn't get, I can't get rid of them. And then, um, then I, then she showed me her leg. She carves the Freemasonry symbol into her leg. And I said, why did you, why, why did you pick that symbol? She said, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know what it means, but she carved it into her leg with a, with a knife. Um, I asked her, why did you call us? She said, well, I, I Googled, I Googled uh, exorcism and called the, the, that diocese. And I, and I saw that you guys were free and the, the, the good and another place charges $600. So I called you guys, so, but, but, but so, so there, there's, there's really evil in some of these drugs, as you know, working on the streets. Oh man. And, yeah. and, uh, we're not talking, you know, even, even now we're, you know, marijuana is becoming legalized in, in more and more progressive States. Um, we're not talking about, smoking a little ganja, as they said back in the 70s, you know what I mean, which was still not appropriate. But we're talking about hardcore drugs. Um, and, and and I'm not advocating marijuana use at all. But the people that are really getting and that stuff, just as you know, that stuff just it, it just demasculates men. You know, um, I see so many young men now yeah. smoking marijuana. you got a great book on this as well. I'm not here to plug your books, but you got a great <laughs> book on that because it demasculates men, young men in the prime of their life when they should be most ambitious, they should be seeking vocation. They just kind of turn into, you know, you know, cuckoo, cuckoo, dude, you know, and it's just all yeah, good. Correct. They mean, they've got no ambition. They've got, they've got no drive. They, they've got no masculine, no masculine energy. It, it destroys all their testosterone, Dan. It really does. Yeah, it, so, makes, so, it, it makes them beta male. Like, so in a case, exactly. So in a case like this, you know, you, you know, you've got, you've got, somebody who's got embedded imageries you can imagine spongebob playing 24 7 in their home it isn't that spongebob is intrinsically evil but it shows that when you combine unholy life and unholy life mental problems uh spiritual and diabolical affliction and you combine all these things together and if you can if the demon can get you to commit a heinous act he'll do it so whether she's possessed or not we don't know but but nobody in their right mind would do that would do these type of acts you know that's diabolic in its very nature in fact, at the very least, there's psychological compatibility. I well, mean, that's another that's another great point is that 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 there's always we see again. This is a great point, Jess, because something that we're trying to flesh out in the new book, we're fleshing it out as we're teaching this to, to various teams, to exorcism teams and priests, is that we have to uncover in, in the lives of, of the people that come to us for help. Psych, psychological compatibility with the demon and what does that look like you see the extreme case here but in that extreme case you still see the demon working against you and us if 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 you have a if you are filled with anger then you attract that spirit of anger if you if you are if you're if you have a spirit if you you are lustful at a carnal level that attracts that spirit there's there's some sort of compatibility and there's a give and take it's interactive um, and, and so cleaning up those areas and getting rid of that garbage, you know, uh, and getting, getting out of your home. We were talking um, recently, you and I were talking about the, the three types of um, general, general categories of curses. And one of, the, one of those three types is the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age. So the more we just let St. Paul talks about that. Yeah. It's friend of the New Testament. Right. Father Ripper's got a great article on, on generational spirits, and, and it's not what we think. Uh, part of, one of them is the, the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age. And, and, you know, and so when you just have your TV completely unguarded and anything goes into your home and your children, they're being inundated with messages. Look what Disney's doing now. Now they've committed to what? 30% of their characters are now are going to, are going to be uh, homosexual or transgender. 
Yeah, you know, correct. I mean, we need to we need to plug that. We need to unplug that. If you look yeah. at Netflix, Amen. garbage, garbage. They have shows that glorify Satan. They have they have they have the they have a large percentage of shows that glorify unholy sex and homosexuality. You know, we just need to unplug this stuff and stop supporting it. We, you know, what I mean, you know, the, you know, yeah, a definition yeah, of a hypocrite. I'm, you know, a definition I'm, I'm, of a hypocrite is what? What's that? The definition of a hypocrite is somebody who complains about the sex violence, the sex and the sex and violence on their VC on their on their VCR or Netflix. Turn that garbage off. Live yeah. a Catholic and they, and, and, and they do nothing about it. They still have they it do on. Nothing about it. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, uh, I'm going to put in a plug for the Protestants. They have a they have a, a, a channel. They put up you know good wholesome movies. Uh, it's called uh, Pure Flix. Pure Flix. Yeah. Yeah, and they've got some good. I mean, you know. Some of these Protestants and stuff, they just the movies at least promote virtue. I'm not saying they promote the sacraments and the fullness of faith, but at least they track in the right direction. Pure yeah. Flix movies, they promote uh, what we what we would agree with you know, some natural virtue and even some uh, you know some some virtues from the, from the Holy Spirit. How did, how did you read it? Uh, you know, because I, I I've read your book. You've told me your stories. I've heard you tell this story many times about um, you know Night Stalker and some of these really super evil. Uh, okay. How did you read it as, as the former law enforcement in your experience? Okay. Two, there, uh, for, for about six months, I worked in a section of the jail called the Mentally Ill Offenders Unit. It had about 200 jail cells. Everybody's in a, a single man cell, solitary confinement. They had no contact with each other. These guys were mass murderers, serial killers, psychopaths, sociopaths. They were the worst killers of the Southwest. Some of them were convicted. We were waiting for the Department of Corrections to pick them up to take them to death row or take them to Pelican Bay or, or, or Tracy prison, which is what these are, you know, life, life in prison or death row. Uh, so one day as a rookie cop, I was very curious. I told the Lieutenant, I said, Hey, I said, so all these guys are killers. He goes, yeah, they're the worst killers of the Southwest. I said, uh, sir, can I read about them? I mean, I'll, 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 all I'm doing is a high paid babysitter. I just feed them three times a day with two other cops. We push a cart, we feed them. We put the food through a little, a, a little, uh, a, a little uh, compartment in the jail cell. We we pass by once a day and give them books to read. And we every twenty minutes we walk the catwalk just to make their. It's a suicide watch. Make sure they haven't killed themselves, and make sure they don't have any articles to hang themselves. So I would get, engage in conversations with some of these guys. I mean, you know, I was there for six months. You get to know them. They know you. They know who you're. Hey, Officer Romero. You you come in from you know two to midnight. So as I read the the police reports the psych evals and the probation reports of all these 200 convicted uh, 200 killers that were on this part of the jail. I noticed that a lot of them said that they killed for Satan. So I got a paper and a pencil and I started making little stick marks of all the people that I'd read that I was guarding, that I was basically, they were under my custody uh, that had killed for Satan. And about, I'd say out of, out, of the, out of the 200 that were there, something like 102 or 103 mentioned to the detective, probation officer, psychologist, psych psychiatrist, or the judge that they killed for Satan. So I brought that up with homicide and homicide said, what? He said, you read through all the reports. I said, yes, sir. Homicide detected the big shots. And, and I said, I discovered that over 50% of these killers here that are on the mentally ill offenders unit said that they killed for Satan. They found that fascinating. This was back in the early eighties, the sheriff's department, as a result of what I did, they opened up a branch in homicide to this day it's called the Occult Crimes Unit within the L.A. Sheriff's Department as a result of what I did. And, uh, and, and, and one day what I did as I started, as I'm feeding these guys, you know, with two other officers, 
I started asking, I asked about 10 killers from cell one to 10, if they could say Jesus is Lord. They couldn't see me talking to the other cellmate because there's like a big old metal door and you open it up and it's just you and the inmate and the, and the three officers. So before I fed them, I said, hey, I'll give you, I'll give you an extra portion of meals if you can say Jesus is Lord. What happened, Dan, is the satanic serial killers could not say Jesus is Lord. The first person I asked was Richard Ramirez, the night stalker who killed 40 women. The other killers like Hell's Angels, Hitmen, uh, Mexican Mafia hitmen, organized crime hitmen, or just, uh, you know, Crips or Bloods gang members doing a drive-by shooting, they could say Jesus is Lord when I asked them to. The only ones that couldn't say Jesus is Lord, the freeway killer, hillside sang- strangler, Rich Ramirez, were the satanic serial killers. I discovered this at the age of 21. I discovered that there's power in the name of Jesus and that there's something different about Jesus that somebody who's fully committed to Satan cannot say that name. War College, we got D.I. DI Dr. Dan Schneider, Jess Romero. We're talking about all things spiritual warfare. Dan, we're, uh, about the, the this article of this lady who killed her three-year-old uh, daughter or, or son, or was it daughter, um, child, after watching SpongeBodge, being under the influence of heroin, withdrawing from heroin. Uh, obviously, you know, anybody who kills somebody, you'll, you'll find them in a rage. There's an angry... There's a there, there's a component of anger in all the murders that I've ever dealt with, and people that are murders, and they'll admit to you that they were angry right before they did that. I'm reading from the old FTC companion guide. It says this: anger is one of the most common garden variety evils. Satan knows our triggers and where an initial spark of anger might lead. Therefore, the demons seek to amplify and distort our perceptions and responses to actual or implied stimuli. The spirit of resentment seeks to, to reignite a grudge or make one think of bad things about the person who made us angry. The spirits of revenge, hatred, or unforgiveness could usher in a spirit of murder. Uh, that's from the old manual. Uh, yeah. it, once again, it just it, it basically, it, demons attack the emotions. And I notice that most people, again, that get involved in murder, they'll one of the excuses that you'll use in a court of law, they'll say, uh, you know, Your Honor, I did this, or detective, you know, officer, I did this. It was, uh, it was the heat of passion. It wasn't me. It was, it was the heat of passion. And so they'll try to, they admit that their emotions got the better of them. And once again, we know from, again, just uh, St. Thomas Aquinas that, uh, and, and the scholastics that demons have access to the emotions. Yeah, even more so the emotion, the, the, the Father Ripperker refers it to as the data set of the memories and the emotions that are attached to them. That's what makes it difficult. Um, so, so, um, so they have access to what he, what he calls this data set, the TV we've watched, the, our own personal experiences, our own histories, um, hurts, wounds, traumas, violence committed, good things, bad things, all these things, the demon had access to it. And, and as, as that, as was written there, um, and I wrote that was the, can distort the perception that that especially when there's a high emotionality, it can distort the perception. And so he can he can take those memories 
and he can distort our perception of the memories. And the, the analogy that I've heard Father Ripperger use, I, in fact, when we were doing some training with him uh, two weeks ago, um, he used the analogy. He said, you can see this in a young couple, married couple. They first get married, and the wife has this cute little snort, pig-like snort when she laughs. And, and he thinks that's the cutest thing, and he just loves that about her. But five years into the marriage, after several fights, uh, <laughs> she laughs, and, he, and she snorts like a pig. It, it makes him absolutely infuriated and, 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 and angry at her. Um, and what, nothing has changed but his perception. So the demon can now launch into the imagination, hurts, wounds, projections. This is why watching our speech, not committing the sin of detraction, rash judgment. You know what I mean? You got to catch yourself when you, when, when, when you have a, here's where the demon is in a very practical level. When you and I have a conversation and all of a sudden you say, Oh, I got to go. Right. And, and then you hang up and I'm like, I start thinking, I bet he, he didn't answer what I said. I bet Jesse is thinking this. I bet Jesse is either mm. doesn't believe me. I bet Jesse is mm. judging me. I bet Jesse went and told three people that I was trying to. I bet Jesse is angry at me. I bet when you once you make start going in there, that's that's a sin of rash judgment. Once you go there, that's a that creates a little vulnerability. Um, let alone the bigger ones like detraction and these things. But the the long and short of it is high emotionality attracts the diabolic high emotionality it isn't that we're going to be you know stepford wives and robots you know what i mean no but you have to get your emotions under control of the will and the intellect and not let that drive your bus because if you're letting your emotions and your instincts drive your bus eventually you're going to get a foreign entity uh driving your bus for you because because he, he's going to be he's going to move in as co-pilot uh, at first and then eventually he's just going to take over and start driving the bus for you yeah, well, here's, the, here's what you wrote in the FTC manual in regards to what you just said. You said, Satan can use these clusters of spirits to oppress us. They can be visualized in a, in a paint wheel where colors are likewise clustered according to similar hue. So too evil spirits and vices have gradations and variations, but generally grouped together. Each one of these spirits needs to be recognized, renounced, and sacramentally confessed. If they are not renounced, these evil spirits will continue to oppress us and grow like weeds in the soul. Left unchecked by virtue, these are further empowered by the vices we practice. Confessing these vices by name therefore helps us to break their hold over us. To rebuke, renounce, and reject, moreover, is a vital step to becoming free of these spirits and their effects in our lives by developing the virtues that correspond to the vices associated with the spirit. The soul now grows in self-mastery. Applying that to this lady that killed her child, number one, her vice was heroin and probably every other drug under the sun. As a result of that, like you said, uh, her, her car was steered by emotions, not by reason or by faith. She had no faith component, no faith life. So she had no life of virtue, no holy habits. She had a life of vice. And so as a result of that, uh, she probably just was uh, invited a cluster of demons just by living a life of, of, of mortal sin, a life of vice. Uh, as Father Ripperger and Kyle also say, the number one reason why demons attack people is because they don't know their faith, A period. They don't know their faith. That's the number one reason why demons attack people. And how can a drug addict have any uh, semblance of any type of a Catholic faith if, uh, if they're always living intoxicated? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And you, and you see, it's a great grace um, when when God allows you to 
Are we on? Is it yeah, yeah, we're on that. Okay. Yeah, no, we're on. Go ahead. It's, it's a great grace when God allows some kind of affliction, you know, and, and to, to, to afflict a person's family or, or a presence in your home. I got a call recently from a guy. Um, he fell asleep. He woke up with a horrible, dis- I mean, a really bad nightmare. And when, as soon as he woke up, he felt, and his wife also felt the presence of, they saw, they saw some darkness in the corner and they felt just as, over, as enveloping evil. He started praying against it and, and praying to our father and the Hail Mary and it went away. And so he asked, what do I do? Get into a state of grace, get into a state of grace, stay in a state of grace, clean up your, if, it ha- if the demon's appearing in your bedroom when you're in there with your wife, there's probably something in the marital act that's unholy confess it and start living a pure life of purity, sexual purity within the teachings of the church. Again, ignorance of the teachings of the faith. I go to confession, but I didn't, I don't confess that contraception is wrong, right? She received communion after looking at porn or contracepting with my wife. So that needs to be confessed and close that door off. So the demon doesn't have permissions to be there and then go through, bless the home with the epiphany blessing. You have the authority as head of household, make this a Catholic home, get rid of all the garbage Right. Get rid of all the, the any, any unholiness, any connections to sin and start living a sacramental life. If that doesn't work, you start ratcheting it up because we you, you don't know if, the, if that's somebody else's garbage that was left in the house. If it's your garbage you brought into the house, if it's your wife's garbage, you don't know what it is. You just know you got to you got to systematically get rid of it. And if it's afflicting you and it's somebody else's garbage because you got a vulnerability, get clean, get into a state of grace. You're not protected without the state of grace. Amen. Dan, St. Teresa of Avila, doctor of the church, says, quote, bad confessions damn the majority of Christians, close quote. Wow. Bad confessions damn the majority of Christians. And the reason is, is because a lot of people are, 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 are it, it, they're committing sacrilege. If you go into the confessional, it's different if you forgot your, some sins because we're not computers. We don't have a computer memory. But if you're if you're purposefully withholding immortal sin because you're embarrassed and you know the priest or et cetera, et cetera, you're adding another sin on top of that. Not only did you make a bad confession, now you have another sin. It's called the sin of sacrilege, because what you're doing is, is you're violating the sanctity of the sacrament of confession. And uh, you're withholding something that, that you should be confessing. And so as, as Catholics, uh, remember, there's nothing that a priest hasn't heard before. You're not going to scandalize them. Guess what? Priests go to confession themselves. Why? Because they're sinners. They're, they're, there's nothing new under the sun that you're going to tell him. Remember, the priest is in the person of Christ. And thanks be to God, most priests that I know, that everybody I've talked to, God gives them the grace of forgetfulness. As, as a, yeah, yeah. I've, I've had that they experience even, too. Yeah, they don't even... They, they got a thousand people in the parish. Trust me, they don't remember what anybody said. God gives them the grace to forget everything by their sake, by their holy orders. Yeah, I knew, I knew an old priest, a World War II veteran, amazing, amazing uh, uh, Franciscan uh, friar, uh, very formative in my own spiritual life and my own conversion, reversion. Um, he would say that he and the other priests would talk about, like, he was a hillbilly from Kentucky, and he would talk about the size of a fish. He'd say, yeah, I got a 30-pounder today, meaning somebody hadn't been in confession in 30 years. They rejoice. Mm. The priests rejoice when they hear this stuff. They don't think, oh, my gosh, Jesse, I can't believe I'm scandalized by you. They <laughs> rejoice when they hear a good confession. When you when you go deep and you condemn yourself and yes. beg the mercy of God and you show firm resolution not to commit this sin. Man, the priests are like, this is why I'm here. I'm not here to hear to listen to you complain about your sister-in-law. I'm not here to listen to you justify your sins. I no, the priests no, love to hear 
the, 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 the people coming clean, whether it means coming clean on the on the subtle little minors, not seemingly minor, but their deep, subtle spiritual sins or the grave sins of somebody who is battling an addiction. Going back to the memory, I was recently talking to a very good priest and a very good friend of mine um, who, who is who is using binding prayers in the sacrament of confession um, to free the memory of. Because a lot of people go in, the demon blocks your memory to not confess it. This is why when I'm working with cases, I tell them, write it down. Do your examination of conscience and write it down. And then shred it, burn it afterwards. And just go in there and just be very methodical. I did this, com- committed this sin four times. This one, three times. And for these and all my sins, I'm heartily sorry. Right? And so yes, it, it takes all the thinking out of it. It takes the guesswork out of it. You take the, well, I'm a decent guy, but yeah, you know. And it, it you got to get real, Right? Robert Duvall had a movie called once called Get Low, right? And and it's, it was a pretty interesting movie. But Get Low means to get real. You got to get real with the Lord, and that starts with being honest with yourself about yourself, uh, um, having compunction and a firm resolution not to commit these sins anymore. This is key to liberation and key to spiritual to spiritual warfare. Getting clean and getting low with the Lord. Lord, this is who I am. Have mercy. This is a mini practice for the particular judgment. Have mercy. Lord, I am not worthy that they should come under that I should come under my roof. Right. Then we'll, this, this brings us into the next topic. I want to talk about healing the family tree. I want to talk about authentic healing versus emotionally. War College, VI Dr. Dan Schneider, Jesse Romero, two-man car. We're on a soul patrol. I want to talk about healing the family tree. uh, Father Dwight Longnecker, a friend of mine, he wrote a short little article. He says, some say time heals all wounds. He says, this is not true. Jesus Christ heals all wounds. He goes through the history of this family tree theology. He says this, a groundbreaking book was published in the 1980s by a British psychiatrist named Kenneth McCall. McCall was brought up in China as a son of Christian missionaries. While there, he witnessed exorcisms and the influence of generational curses on families. By the way, he's a Protestant. He grew up to train as a doctor and eventually went on to specialize in psychiatry. He discovered that some incurable psychiatric patients had, as part of their problem, unresolved deaths within their family circle. He experimented with a new therapy in which he invited the priest, pastor, or rabbi of the patient to conduct a funeral service for the dead relative. In many cases, he found a marked improvement in his patient, and in the book, he tells the startling stories of some very remarkable, complete recoveries. He went on to discover that sometimes the trouble in the family history was not simply an unresolved death, but an unresolved trauma. An addiction addiction problem or even an occult curse that had been placed on the family. McCall's theory is that in some cases of emotional or mental disturbance, there's a spiritual dimension. One can discuss this in sensational language, saying the living person is haunted or cursed. However, one might just as easily use less dramatic language and say that there's a spiritual disturbance within the inherited family members' memory. So I want to want you to comment on this, Dan. The language used to describe the problem is secondary. The solution is what I find so interesting. As a Protestant, McCall stated to have funeral services for the dead, 
in order to help the living find healing and reconciliation. Then McCullough began to discover the Catholic tradition of praying for the dead. He spoke to a Catholic who explained the logic behind requiem masses. Masses said for the repose of the soul of the departed. McCullough discovered that, that the Catholic belief in purgatory and began to understand that it, is, that it has always been part of Catholic teaching, that the dead could be prayed for and the prayers offered for them, especially the prayers of the mass, would help them on their journey and assist them to be reconciled. McCall's great discovery is that this traditional Catholic practice is not only beneficial for the dead, but also for the living. And I'm going to jump to the last part of the paragraph that I'll have you. He says, of course, within the Christian healing ministry, uh, Dr. McCall says, we do not look for magical or instant cures. Sometimes there are remarkable, seemingly miraculous answers. More often, the healing is gradual, deep, and real. In the area of emotional, mental, and relational problems, the spiritual dimension is often only one factor in a complicated network of problems. Each one needs to be unpicked carefully and gradually for the total healing of the mind, body, and spirit. This needs to take place within a caring community of faith with a solid dis discipline of prayer and professional guidance. While there are amazing healings, most often they're rooted in a larger, more down-to-earth ministry of day-to-day -day discipline and prayer. Uh, sounds to me like he's uh, describing the Libra Cristo monastic method of healing. Yeah, and yeah there's nothing unique about, about Libra Cristo, what we're doing with Father Ripperger. I mean, this is... We're seeing this, you know, people say, oh, I can't do the phase one protocol. That's way too hard. It's not pastoral enough. And I've heard priests complain, oh, it's not pastoral enough. But if you went to that same priest and said, okay, Father, this person wants to do Exodus 90. What do you think? 90 days of cold showers, 90 days of abstinence from the marital act, 90 days of fasting, 90, a 90 day of penance. They'll say, oh, that's great for the soul. But, but 30 days of praying just three times a day for five minutes and shutting off your internet for 30 days is not pastoral. I mean, it's, it's, it's illogical. Um, we see the truth of the Catholic faith, of, of the tradition of the church, is the orarium set times for prayers, because the church universal, you're invoking the prayers of the, of the entire church universally, worldwide, and in heaven, and in purgatory. The totus Christus for Augustine isn't just, the, the body isn't just here on earth, it's the church militant, us, the church, the church, the church uh, suffering and purgatory, and the church triumphant coming together in a monastic style or type of discipline is very, very important. And so we heal the generation. We don't, we don't heal a family tree. We heal family members. And how do you heal the family members that have gone before us? Um, you don't retroactively project back in some kind of new Mormon type strange theology that we see in many models, even Catholic models, you say have masses said for the dead. We've lost our understanding of having masses. You know why? Because somebody dies and, and they're instantly, the, the priest will say, well, that grandma or your sibling, whatever, is now an angel in heaven, right? Well, no, that's <laughs> metaphysically impossible, a human is a human, an angel is an angel. They are not your guardian angel. They are most likely, unless Mother Teresa was your aunt, they are most likely, unless they are canonized by the Roman Catholic Church, they are most likely in purgatory and in need of your prayers. I love what you said uh, when your mom and your dad died, when you went to the priest and said that the Romero brothers, if you canonize my mom and rob her of everybody's prayers 
in purgatory, we're going to stand up and inter interrupt you during the yep. mass. I mean, and it worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know what else? People now know that story and they pray for the dead. It is so important to have masses said for the souls in purgatory. And that's how you heal the family tree. And we see this. I can see, I've seen many cases where a family, a family member dies and at the death of the parent or the grandparent, that's when the blood curse really unroll, unravels and rolls through the family. So it shows you that at that death, great, the graces, the merits of, of masses said, or even better, the Gregorian masses, 30 days of masses, there's great grace in these traditions of the church, not just for their soul, but also for the for those that are affected by their by their own sinfulness, things that they've committed, procreation or generational sins they've committed, any witchcraft, Freemasonry they may have been a part of. This helps, this helps un, pull out the undergirding of curses. Having masses prayed for the dead is very, very important. And then go to work on the the living family members of turning your home into a Catholic home, turning off all the garbage on TV, turning off Disney, turning off Netflix, making your home a truly Catholic home, praying. It's getting staying in a state of grace, regular confession. You heal family members, and through that, you bring healing to the tree. Yeah, Dan. Again, at the very least, one of the beautiful things about the, the liver crystal model of of uh, media fasting is that it it just your your emotions uh, are not triggered for thirty or sixty days because that's what what music and media does. I mean, it's it's meant. This is specifically. I mean, you have. Uh, you have firm uh, advertisement firms that get paid millions of dollars. They know how to trigger people's emotions and passions. And so if you're somebody who's given over to the emotions and passions, it's a good thing to start regulating what you watch and what you listen to and, uh, and, and start trying to find more quiet time. Then I want to just ask you a little bit about, there's a term that, you know, people use all the time and I'm going to healing mass. I'm going to healing mass. Uh, what would you say about the term a Catholic healing mass? Why, why it would, would not this be the preferred way of calling what the church has been doing for 2000 years or what's wrong with uh, just, you know, nobody will go down to daily mass or there's 15 people or 20 people, but you got a healing mass on Friday and you got a thousand people and you have to put a, uh, you have to put a TV screen in the hall and people are, you know, for overflow. What is it about healing mass? that attracts so many Catholics and uh, is, is, is uh, you know, I want, I want you to get your comments on that. Yeah. I, I mean, first of all, let's be very clear. Every mass is a healing mass. Amen. Every mass, the healing power of, of, of the sacrifice of Calvary is made present in an unbloody manner upon the altar through the hands of the priest who stands in persona Christi, who has the gift of healing by part of his gifts of the, of his ordination is the gift of healing. It is the munus sanctificandi, the, 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 the duty, the obligation to sanctify. And so, first of all, let's define healing. Healing, first of all, is healing the brokenness between the soul that separates the soul from God, that keeps the soul out of friendship with God. That's for true healing. And so, Cardinal Rat, Phil Benedict, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, wrote a document clarifying this. And we could probably get that out next time and unpack it on what yeah. he said on the appropriateness of healing masses. But, but the all, decorum must always be maintained. It should not supplant what's happening in the mass. So the mass, the mass itself is, is centered to bring cosmic healing to humanity, to the entire cosmos, where the whole church comes together and prays and makes present 
the, 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 the salvific act of Christ on Calvary. And we, we say to ourselves, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, the words of the centurion, but only say the word, but adapted, and my soul may be healed. Primary mass is designed to heal the soul and reconcile souls with God. What happens to the body um, and, and the physical suffering we suffer are, are secondary or tertiary to what's happening at the level of the soul. Then also another thing that is not good for neophyte Catholics, if they hear the term healing mass, to them they compartmentalize in their mind. They're saying, okay, so only if you go to this healing mass will Jesus heal you. But any other mass, he doesn't heal you. So a neophyte, a newbie is going to start compartmentalizing and start thinking that there's there's different different, uh, things occur at the mass. And the same thing occurs at every single mass. The once and for all sacrifice of Calvary is made present here and now in the eternal now of sacred time, and we are receiving the fruits of Calvary. Uh, so I, I don't think it's 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 good Catholic uh, language to use the term healing mass because I think that that confuses especially neophytes, and they're going to think there's there's something special about this monthly healing mass done by Father So and So. Right? Yeah, yeah. The efficacy, the efficaciousness of the mass is present, regardless of of you know of, of our subjective um, you know what we think of it. If it's not if it's not uh, the right type of mass, if it doesn't have this intention, the, the efficacy Christ has made present. What's what, one of the things that the, that that Father uh, uh, had said in this article um, was uh, something about magical or instant cures. And too often we look for magical or instant cures. And I've seen so many cases that they want healing from God. And, and, they, and God seemingly doesn't answer their prayers because there's still physical suffering. So they want to avoid suffering. And so the avoidance of suffering, they're lured into a cult. And we're seeing this blending. We're seeing a blending now of, of certain strains of rather of more charismatic Catholics and Christians and blending it together with with some new age practices to kind of short circuit um, the system in many ways and try to and try to avoid the cross. That's a wrap. Yep, that's exactly what Satan wants us to do. Avoid the cross at all costs. Run away from the cross that Christ has given us. Thanks, Dan. We'll see you next week. You're listening to War College. This is Romero Dan Schneider. We are EOW End of Watch. Up next, Gary Machuda, Hands on Apologetics. Stick around. God bless. Keep the faith.